Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Eric Stefanski. Eric is an established artist from Chicago whose work has been featured in shows worldwide. Practicing as a painter, his work reflects the humor and rejection that comes with having a studio practice. He explores themes of modern society, art history, pop culture, sports, and even examines his own personal history. I came upon Eric's Instagram and instantly felt connected to his work. His paintings made me feel emotionally exposed as they engage in our romantic fantasies and are relatable to anyone who has fallen in or out of love, dealt with loss, or struggles with their own flaws. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I am very excited to dig in a little bit deeper about your journey as an artist, as well as what you've experienced. Why don't we kind of start with, did you grow up in a really artistic home or how did you find art? It was around, it was not, you know, at the forefront. Uh, my mother was a, a elementary school teacher's aide and uh, my father was like an old biker, but they were, you know, there was always art books around, but, you know, they weren't either one of them too artistic. Um, and I kind of, I found it pretty later. Uh, also as well like I I went to business school first uh, before I went to art school and I knew that even when I was younger that I wanted to have I guess like a sense of stability when I was an adult so I thought going to business school would be like a good you know have a good foundation or, or get, have more opportunities when I was older but about halfway through uh, I, I realized that uh, like I was miserable and I was a terrible student, but I was so far into it as long as I, I ended up graduating through it. But right around my uh, like junior, sophomore year of college, I was, I was started to write music. I started to play a lot of music. I was playing in like the subway or like at local bars and things like that. And it quickly, you know, that became like a central focus for me. Um, but I remember finding a a blank canvas in my parents basement of their apartment and I started paint I went out and I bought some paints and I, I started working and that kind of that was the beginning of it well one thing you just said that you did you played some music in the subway and I always give people credit who do that because to me you're just fearless you're going out there in the middle of nowhere and you just start playing um, that takes a lot of confidence to do. Did you always have that kind of confidence or is that something that as you start to realize what you didn't want in life with regards to business school, that you found that confidence in things that brought you joy? Yeah, and I think it was that because, you know, I was studying like finance or taking like upper level math classes. I was, I, I was so uninterested in it. And I was, I was, be, I would be sitting in these classes, and I would, you know, have like long, a long beard and hair, and and all, everyone else was like in a tie, and I was, I looked so out of place there. And I think they all knew it, and I definitely knew it. Um, but when I started making work, 
Um, not so much with music because that always felt, you know, if I was, if I played for two hours, that really felt like I played for two hours. It didn't go by, you know, it, it, at times it, it really felt like work when I'm in the studio now painting or drawing or, or, you know, I, I could be in there for 10 hours and that feels like 10 minutes. So that kind of like, that's where I think really where that kind of like confidence comes in because, and also at the same time, I don't, I can't imagine that, you know, the music that I was playing was, you know, that good. or <laughs> like, you know, really going to blow someone's hair back. It wasn't really impressing people, you know, that way. It was just, it was, I needed an outlet. I needed something to kind of, you know, I was pulling my hair out you know, in, in this, in this school and I needed something. And that kind of was like a really good outlet. And that kind of like, I was able to start writing and, you know, I was writing my own songs and, 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 and doing that. And that kind of really jumpstarted things. I think what's really interesting is when you're in high school or in college or, you know, starting to think about what makes you happy versus what will financially provide And I know for me, I have a younger brother who's always been super artistic and my parents didn't discourage, but they didn't, um, they just said, you're going to need to make a living. Yeah. So yeah, you might be phenomenal at art, but you're going to need to make a living. And it's interesting because through that all, he still comes back to art. So I feel like when you have that calling or that talent or that joy that making something gives you even if you try to go into business or try to go into something else, you still come back to the art. And for you, you got done with school, but then you applied to grad school at the Art Institute in Chicago. How did you land on that school and what was the grad program you decided to enroll in? So I actually, so I finished at at the College of Commerce in DePaul and I was, you know, I knew that I was going to go to art school and, you know, I, I needed some type of like formal kind of like training though. So like right when I graduated, I enrolled at the school of the art in city of Chicago just to take like undergraduate classes and have some type of formal training in this. And, you know, it was a great experience because not only that I like, I was around like-minded people for the first time, but it was also I was introduced to contemporary art and like that was really important. So I was there for about a year and a half and then I was working, working in the studio and then I applied to graduate school and I actually went to grad school in Boston at the School Museum of Fine Arts and I was there for two years and then I taught there for a year. So, and that was a really formative experience because like that was intense that the, I love the program. I love the professors. And like my cohort of, of other artists was, we were really strong. You know, it was, it was like a really nice collective of us. And I believe during that period, you experienced an unbelievable loss. Your mom passed away while you were in Boston. Can you talk to us a little bit about growing up, what your mom was like, her background when we spoke previously, I thought was really interesting and definitely like it had instilled a lot in, I think, your work ethic as well. Yes. I mean, she was incredible, like wildly supportive, uh, kind, um, really compassionate. Um, 
she, she was a fantastic mother and I had, uh, she was fantastic. And she was a teacher's aide at, at an elementary school. I actually went to the same school when I was younger. So she was there for uh, like 20, 25 years when, and we would be out in our neighborhood and, she, you know, there would be kids screaming out of the car, like her name. She was like this beloved figure, like in my neighborhood. And I was, we were, we were in Boston. I was in my last year. I was, I actually had, I think two weeks left of school and we were getting ready for her. You know, we were making plans the night before on, you know, her flight, she was going to fly in to come and see her final show and all of that. And one, uh, that was like a Monday and my father called me Tuesday morning and asked if I was alone, um, and told me that she passed away. Uh, you know, she was a, she was a heavy smoker, but it was, you know, really unexpected. And that had this devastating effect on like my family where it, especially my father. So we, she passed, we flew back to Chicago, we had the service and, you know, I had to get back to, I had to get back to Boston now because I had to finish, I had to finish school and we flew back. Um, and you know, I, I was, you know, working full time, working in the studio, just trying to do anything, you know, possible to kind of like, to not focus on that because I, I really didn't know how to deal with it either. And I just working incessantly working in the studio before I went to work, uh, you know, going to the studio for a couple hours in the morning, going to work after work, going back into the studio finishing, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night and just doing it all day, every day, almost to the point of like just exhaustion. Because again, I, I was just having, I, I didn't know what to do. Well, of course it caught up. Uh, and I was in the studio. I kind of, I like bent over and I just passed out and my wife, she, you know, she couldn't get a hold of me. She, she comes to the studio. She finds me. I was passed out on the floor. I, I lost feeling in my legs and she called, so I couldn't walk. She calls the ambulance. They come and they, they take me to bring them in women's hospital. They, I had some nerve damage in my lower back and I herniated a couple discs in there and I couldn't walk for a while. I was in a, I was in a, a, a walker and then I was in a cane. I, I had to use a cane to walk for a while. And, you know, that kind of like, I couldn't use like the studio as like a crutch to not kind of deal with it because I couldn't do anything. I just had to like sit there and, and, and deal with it. But also, I mean, at that same time, my, my in-laws, they, uh, they planned a trip, like a, like a, they planned a trip to Colorado for all of us that summer. And, you know, they, they had, you know, we were going to go hiking and, and like rafting and I couldn't do any of those things now because I, you know, I could barely walk. So my father-in-law, he hired a guide to take us out uh, fly fishing. I really like to fish. And so he took, he took us out and, you know, we were like an hour outside of Breckenridge. And I remember, I mean, if, if I ever had a religious experience and it, it was, it was then, uh, I was standing in this river, waist deep, um, you know, fishing. And it was, you know, there's mountains in the backgrounds and I was all by myself. And I remember standing there and like the, 
you, you know, the coolness of the water on my lower back felt great. And like, I was able to kind of like let my body go limp a little bit. And like the current was kind of like, you know, holding me up as already. And right on the edge of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fishing. And then it was the first time in like a while I felt okay. And three horses come walking through the river and they were massive and so loud and, you know, extremely close to me and yet like incredibly graceful. And I remember just watching them walk right in front of me and they walk through the river and I kind of like almost, I follow them out. And what I thought was uh, a stone, like sticking out of like the bank, um, I picked it up and it turned out to be a lower vertebrae of a horse, the same vertebrae that I hurt in my lower back. And so, you know, I'm, I have that bone now on my nightstand and I, I see it every day. Um, and that, that period was like a really intense time because, you know, I, I knew that, you know, things were, things were going to be okay. That I, you know, just kind of keep at it. Um, but that when she passed, it kind of, it, it also like had a really, uh, you know, my father kind of like never recovered and he was such a strong, proud man. Um, you know, when he was, if she was like this elementary school, uh, like teacher, he's this old hell's angel, you know, he had long hair, long beard, loved motorcycles there was motorcycles everywhere in our house i mean they were in our kitchen and like in our dining room uh he wore all leather and i inherited his love of motorcycles too and he was his health started to get really bad and i could never get him kind of like back healthy i, I could never get him to go to the hospital well finally i got him in and he uh you know he had a, uh, problems with his heart and they, they do a valve replacement and they, but he, once he got out of there, I, you know, my sister and I, we started to notice that there was something not right. Like he was right with him. He was kind of, he would, he would be talking incoherently. He would be like, he'd be very forgetful of things. Um, he, his neighbors would call me and they would just kind of like find him like, you know, outside of his house, things like that. He would be just be leaving me random rambling messages. So, you know, that went on for, you know, a few weeks. We, I, w I went to his house and I walk upstairs, I walk into his apartment and all of the lights are off and he's just kind of pacing back and forth, really disorientated. And I knew something was really bad, really wrong with him. So that, you know, I grab him, I put him in the car, I take him to the hospital um, he gets admitted, um, and, you know, he spends some time in a psych psychiatric ward and he just, you know, I going to visit him. And then, you know, finally he, he was able, you know, he was well enough to kind of like get out of there, got him back home. And, but he still had all these issues with his heart and it was getting worse and worse. I had to take him back into the hospital and, he he had an he had a, caught an infection in his in his valve that they replaced and in his heart and things like that. And I knew it was getting pretty close. 
um, like, especially I had a conversation with uh, a surgeon at Rush and they, you know, he was, I thanked him for his frankness. And, and he told me that like, you know, he's very sick and I have to open him up, take out his heart. And, you know, the surgery is going to be ours. He's not going to survive the surgery. And if he does survive, you still have to contend with the stroke that he had. And he told, you know, he's like, what are you saving at that point? And I was, I was like, that's hard to hear, but I appreciate the frankness. The next morning they call me early. They said, you know, come to the hospital. It's, 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 it's happening. Uh, we rushed to the hospital and I remember like going, getting on the floor of his ward and there was alarms going off uh, and he kept crashing. And finally they stabilized him enough where we can go see him go into the room, you know, he had a breathing tube in. I told him to take the tube out, uh, you know, because he never wanted to be, he never wanted that. And I was able to, you know, I held him in my arms and he passed away about 15 minutes later. As hard as that was, uh, a little over a year ago, I, I'm so thankful for that experience now. Because with my mother, it was like, you know, she was here on like Monday and she's gone Tuesday. There was never it was just so immediate with him. I actually got a chance to be there and that would, you know, and, and that was, you know, an experience again, as hard as it was I'm so thankful for it. Now that I got a chance to do that. So there's so much there. I definitely want to unpack. And I just want to say, thank you for being so open and vulnerable about what you've been through. And I think what a lot of listeners could relate to is when we lose someone unexpectedly, like you, it's really hard to process. It's hard to realize you woke up one day and they're just not here. And I know in the past when I've lost very people who are very close to me, um, for you is like being in the studio and working for me, it was like working out. Like, I just don't want to feel the pain. I would rather feel the physical pain and like the soreness in my muscles than like the emotional pain of having to process it. I think anyone listening who's been there before knows you can only outrun that for so long until finally like the morning and the emotions and the, you know, for better terms, like come to Jesus moment where you're like, I have to kind of face this because I'm still here and I need to understand like, how do I rebuild my life with like part of me missing? And that's that part you are trying to like, outrun. So I know that's definitely really challenging. And on top of mourning as a son, you're also dealing with your own physical issues that have kind of come from not dealing with this. And I'm sure that probably put things in perspective too. Like, is that how you really wanted to continue living with not being able to walk and that whole aspect had to also be hard when you're kind of stuck having to not be able to work or walk or kind of do a lot of physical activities to move around. You're in it. You're in that grieving. Um, were you able to kind of grieve with your dad or were you able to talk to him about it or did that kind of make it worse for him and for you? So I, when, when she did pass, I mean, and thankfully my sister was here. You know, I have, I'm the youngest, I have an older brother and a sister and very close with my sister. And she, I had another year in Boston before we moved, before my wife and I, we moved back to Chicago. Um, 
I had to teach at, uh, at the school there for a year. And she had one more year of her graduate program. So for that year that they were here, when it was just them, I mean, she really took the reins and she really, you know, she was a great daughter and, you know, and she really looked after him. So I never got to see that first year, really, when he was here. You know, I would just hear things. I know that he was not well. I know that he was not handling it well. And, you know, we were really worried, um, you know, he was a recovering alcoholic. And I was really concerned, we all were, that he was going to go uh, back to drinking. And, you know, he was, he took it, he took his sobriety really serious. He was, he was in the program for like 20 years, 23 years. Um, you know, he would go to meetings sometimes, you know, twice a day, especially during that time. And that was one thing too, when he was getting sick, when his own health physically and his mental health was declining, his physicians, they would, they would constantly ask me, like, is he abusing alcohol? Is he abusing drugs? And I kept having to like, tell them, no, he, he's, he's definitely not. I, we would know. Um, but luckily during, you know, when it first happened, luckily you know, my sister was, was here. But when we, when we came back, when we moved back to Chicago, you know, I saw him every day, you know, he was in my studio. I saw him every day and outside of talking about art and music, you know, he would, he loved motorcycles and him and I would just go on long motorcycle rides together, work on bikes together, talk about them. And it's one thing, you know, that I inherited from him that has been, you know, something I'll always have. Uh, and so we kind of like use that as the language to kind of like communicate, but, you know, he, he, he was also like really outgoing and like, he was not afraid to show emotion and like, you know, on, on the exterior, he, he, you know, again, look like, you know, he's like an old hell's angel, but he was this incredibly like warm and, and kind man. And it, like, I, couldn't have asked for like a better father in that regard where he was open about it. He would show emotion. He, you know, he was not, he was not like the strong silent type at all. He, he was, he was okay with it. He, and like, I think a lot of it that was able to, and, you know, he was also really in therapy for 20 years, you know, he was an AA for 20 years. And so like a lot of that, he was able to kind of like get through, because of that program you know and that that program really also saved his marriage as well because my mom was like you know we're leaving and luckily he had the foresight to realize okay, okay I have to kind of probably do something about this now so I'm also a child of um, a parent who is an addict my mom is a recovering alcoholic um, and I got her permission when I started this podcast that I was like when this kind of stuff comes up can I be open and honest about it and she gave me her blessing um, cause I always just want to be really respectful, but I do think that in the past, when I watched my mom lose her parents, it was a concern for us about would she go back to drinking? Cause it's like, you're in this hole and you don't know how to come out and you kind of sometimes go towards those things that bring you comfort, even though they might not be the best for you, but she also leaned in really heavily to AA and that community of support which is almost like therapy um, that yeah. you're getting once or twice a day. And even during the pandemic, when things, you know, we were all in that dark place, um, they 
got it on Zoom and we're able to still be there for each other. So I do think it's a really great community. I do also realize it doesn't work for every single individual who is an addict. You kind of have to pick and choose what you want to take from the program. But I do think it allows you to create that community that can support you when you're going through those darker days. Did you ever go to a meeting with her? I did not. But, you know, when COVID was happening, I would sometimes be at their house and I would hear it. Sure. Yeah. And it was kind of funny in a way where they would all start and be like, hi, my name is so-and-so and and I'm an alcoholic. And hi, my name, you know, I kind of felt like I was in a family guy or some kind of cartoon. A little I remember, I remember going, hear it. Yeah. I remember going with mine and I like, it is if the, you could cut through the air with, you know, a knife, the amount of smoke in there and the strongest black coffee you will ever have. Yes. And they were, but like my, my dad, he was, you know, he was really outgoing, really charismatic. So he, he almost had like a room to work. So he would, you know, he would always sponsor guys and like run the meetings and, and things like that. He was really into it. And yeah. because I think a lot of it, because he had it like almost like an audience in front of him yeah. and he loved it. But, and I remember going to, you know, going that he would always ask uh, us to come to meetings with him and like, yeah, what, you know, you'd hear stories and I'm like, Jesus, this fucking terrible and then like like my wife went to my he went took my wife to one of them and I remember she called me she's like that is that is really something that can get really depressing really yeah fast. yeah and, and then I, you want to have a drink when you get out of there it's, it's right it's real thing but it like you said it works for it works for people and then other people it doesn't work for you know and but he was also he was a pretty religious guy and so he like really he locked into that program especially with um, the giving up to a higher power and 100% yeah. yeah like he was yeah he was pretty he was pretty religious and so he kind of like got that too and at his service I mean there would be and everyone's in it right like there's all different types of people that are in it you have priests you have like actually there's a lot of priests in it and yeah. then you have like addiction you know, does not discriminate across the board yeah. you can be rich poor all different kinds of religions, races, it does not discriminate. But did it stop I, with your mom or was there a history with it? Um, so my mom's a child of two Holocaust survivors. And when we talk about generational trauma, I don't think people realize like how real it it is. And as after my grandparents passed away, like I always knew what my grandparents' stories were coming out of the Holocaust. I don't know how you function as a child after witnessing and experiencing that. But I think that when they came to America with nothing and two kids with another one on the way, my mom was born here, uh, they did the best they could. So I think that my mom like had some mental health stuff. Yeah. She suffers from depression. And one thing people don't necessarily realize is addiction and mental health are like best friends there there's some parallel and a lot of people will start self-medicating and I think my mom did that at a younger age and she wasn't a everyday drinker it was just she didn't know like hey I probably shouldn't have that drink again sure yeah yeah kind of thing I've always been so neurotic about it like very attuned to when I'm drinking 
um, or smoking weed or any, you know, those really yeah. are the two things. Um, my brother really doesn't touch alcohol at all because I think when you witness that at a young age, you're just like, you associate that drink with a behavior or an experience. For sure. Yeah. And like I was pretty young still when he got into the program. So I don't really remember, you know, a lot of it. Um, but I'm with you about like being conscious of it. I like having a good time as much as the next person. Yeah. And it's kind of like always like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Well, um, it's the always kind of like there, but, and like his parents were alcoholics. I mean, their, their parents were alcoholics on my mother's side. They were all addicts. So it's always kind of like been around there. I, my mom uh, told me okay. that when they would sit for Passover, which is one of the high holidays, yeah. uh, there's like, you're supposed to have like eight glasses of wine. And she was like, I was eight or nine years old getting wasted because yeah. They would follow and sit for hours during the service and everything like that. And so, and also being a child of the seventies and all of that aspect, oh, yeah. I also do think there is some genetics that play into it because on the flip side, I knew about what a quaalude was at 10 years old because my dad yeah. still talks about them and he did way more drinking and drugging than my mom ever did, but not an issue. I so there is that like genetic component, but I do remember, and I'm curious what your experience was. My mom was really shameful that she was an addict. It was like a very kept secret. Uh, no one could know when she went to rehab. Um, the okay. line was that when she was in rehab, that she had worked so hard at my bat mitzvah, my dad like sent her to a spa as a thank you, but like okay. no one knew yeah. what was happening um, because the town we grew up in is gossipy and bubbly and there's that stigma around addiction and I never understood why she was so shameful of it because when you have cancer and you're getting treatment you're looked at as a he hero for going through that but when you're getting treatment for addiction it's not like you choose to be an addict it's a shameful thing so I never really got that and it took a while and that's why I asked her when I started the podcast, can I openly talk about it? Because if you still want to kind of keep it a secret, I respect that it's your journey. But what I want to do is remove the stigma from it. For sure. And and that is definitely like, you know, it's such a, it's such a personal thing with people. That was not my experience with my dad. I mean, he, all, all of his neighbors were, were drunks. I mean, all of his friends were uh, like, his mailman, everyone knew that he was an addict. Everyone knew that he was in recovery. I mean, he, but he got to the point where he was, he was pretty good with it. I mean, he was, his best friend was owned a bar in our neighborhood. So he would go and sit at the bar at the end of the bar and just have a Coke and just, or have a club soda and just sit there for hours and never, you know, never, I'm sure it was on his mind all of the time, but I think he knew the consequences of it though. Like, especially when my mom was alive, because, you know, she was, she would just leave, you know, it just, and he knew that if he started that, I mean, there was uh, the writings on the wall then at that point, if he started drinking again. No, absolutely. And then the other thing I thought was so interesting that you talked about was that experience in Colorado, when you mentioned like the horses and just like the whole thing, part of me 
felt like your mom was with you in that like moment somehow or the universe had your back literally showing you a spine that's like your central nervous system it's what makes you keep going and the fact you saw one and now you still have it and that was the same part that was hurting you there's got to be a lot of symbolism there i mean it was profound experience for sure and like uh i remember on the flight back to boston from colorado i wrote a poem on the flight and that poem um was installed on it, it still might be there it was a, it's a, it was installed on the walls of boston city hall and so like it's so when you could go pay your parking ticket you could go like go read this poem that i wrote but it was you know i i grew up in the city i've lived in chicago or boston i never was on a ranch or like any of that and and so seeing like a, that large of an animal that close and that graceful oh just that in itself but then like the experience of just during that time and like that finding solace in that and then doing you know fishing which i really love to do all of that that was uh you know, it stays with me like it, you know it, it again it, like if i ever had a religious experience that that would that would be it and like i see that i see that bone every day and it's just a reminder you know regardless of how you know it sounds like almost opery like but like however shitty things can get it, it will get better you know yeah. it, it will get better the universe literally has your back you have part sure. of it yeah yeah having on the complete opposite side of you being able to be there with your dad when he passed and the doctor being so upfront with you kind of saying you can go through this but where's the quality of life how are you going to do this um I've been fortunate enough to have been with a grandparent when they took their final breath and it's really an honor to have that experience with a loved one it's um such a surreal experience um but do you remember like what you thought when you walked out of that room or what was going through because it's kind of hard to process in the moment what just happened I was there with you know I was me my sister and I were there uh, my wife was there we were uh my nephew was there we were you know we, we were able to you know talk to him uh, and, you know, physically, you know, he, he was still there, but, you know, I, you kind of like, I, I saw his health kind of like declining. So, uh, you know, over almost like a year period where I had that like scenario, I had that experience of bringing him into like rushing him into the hospital where we're finding him like passed out, like over and over again. So during that time, like, especially over the last, like, in the last six months, he was, I, I played it out so many times. And I was like, seeing him, like, I remember going to a friend's house uh, the night before he, before he passed and talking to them. And, you know, I was extremely upset. And I, and I told them, I was like, I cannot keep doing this because like, I'm seeing him die over and over again. And it's really fucking me up. Yeah, you're putting and, your like, body I, through the trauma multiple yeah, times. Cannot. And so when it finally did happen, it was it, it, it was a sense of relief because he was no longer in any pain. His quality of life totally, you know, collapsed. 
you know, he wasn't able to ride a motorcycle or he could barely stand. And so, you know, very much to what that surgeon said to me is like, you know, what, what are you saving at this point? You know, like, yeah. So I think all the experiences you've gone through has really shown up in your art. And that's how I found you was on Instagram because I started following you a while ago and I just loved your art and how honest it is and raw and the messages. How did you land? And for listeners, I will uh, post pictures on the podcast account and also make sure uh, Eric's Instagram handles in this episode show notes for you to look at. But how did you land on this format of contemporary art? Text was always a part of it. And, you know, I'll, I spend a good amount of time writing and, you know, I'll, the text is always coming from language that I've written. Um, and I think that if you, for me, the work is always kind of goes back to the success and failure, um, humor and pathos that comes with holding the studio practice, you know, uh, every day going in there and making artwork and holding, you know, almost a contradictory thought in your head, you know, at times where you feel like I'm, I'm a genius. And then other times you feel like I'm a fraud. And when the work is really activated, like for me is when it, it does two things where it's able to, it points outward to other issues within our culture or art history. And then simultaneously it points inward to my own experience. So it, it could be both didactic and it could both be, and then also at the same time, polemic. Um, and that tension there that where I found like a well that I could keep going back to and mining content out of because you know the experiences that I that I'm having making artwork um, are not any different than what other people do you know in 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 their profession where you know you're constantly second guessing yourself you're you know you're putting yourself out there and then when people can find or, you know, they find, and I get notes all the time from people saying, you know, I could really relate to this. And when they can relate to it within the context of their own lives, it becomes this like extra, almost like cherry on top for me. And it becomes like this really nice thing. And I get these letters and notes all the time from people. And it's, it's really nice. Um, so one of your pieces I love that one day I hope to afford is you have one that says, do whatever you want. No one gives a fuck. And I feel like I need that in front of my bed every morning when I wake up where it's like, do whatever you want. Like no one gives a fuck, live your best life. Like don't live it for other people. And there's other ones of yours that. And that's um, and like, that's, that's an example where, you know, the language in that work. Um, I always see that the language is like the text is almost, I'm having a conversation with the work myself where it's a one-to-one -one relationship where I'm talking to it and it's, you know, talking back to me and it could, you know, and it's telling you those things and where it's, you know, do whatever you want. I'm in my studio, you know, trying to, you know, grasp for some higher level of, you know, success or recognition. And, you know, it, truth is no one cares. It's, 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 you know, it, this is not gonna, you know, split the world in half. 
So really do whatever you want. And it's that me telling it to the work and the work kind of like telling it to me. But again, that's language that I could, you know, it's relatable in too many different contexts. I'm using it within the context of making artwork and doing that every day, like dedicating my life to that process. Um, and I have, you know, I have a pretty, I have a pretty, you know, kind of tame life. I, a couple of years ago, we had the, you know, my wife and I, we bought a two flat and I use, you know, the first level as my studio and we live upstairs with our dog and, you know, seven thirty in the morning, I have a cup of coffee and I walk downstairs and, you know, I bring the dog down work and come back up, you know, have lunch and then go back down and finish up the day. And so it's, it, it, it's really quite structured in that way too. Um, but like that language is coming from that labor that is involved with it every day, the uh, every day doing it. And when I'm not doing it, I'm thinking about it. And when I'm even doing it, I'm worried, uh, you know, I'm concerned and, uh, that I should, you know, be doing more. Uh, and so, yeah. Well, I'm like, as we're talking, I have your Instagram pulled up because I'm sitting here and I'm looking at it while you're talking about how you're living it and it comes across so much because I think what your art really represents is like the absolute truth these are all ideas and feelings that we have like there's one where you say like you broke my fucking heart how many times have we experienced that heartbreak and we feel like that we want to scream it from the top of our lungs but it's all inside because have to go on with your day and pretend like you're fine but like inside you're like I am dying right now of heartbreak like and when you look at the piece that um that says that it's so loud and like out there almost if the painting had emotions like those would be the colors that would be how big it is that you're feeling that pain yeah and so so two things with language like that where it's you know when I was saying it was it, it could point out to other things within our culture. And so that language of, you know, you broke my heart um, is, is directly, you know, pointing to uh, the Godfather and, and with Michael and Fredo, where you're thinking that at times you feel like Michael at other times you feel like Fredo. And when he grabs him and he says, you know, you broke my heart, that's that experience, you know, that's that experience, that duality uh, that you're having, where again, you, you feel really great. And you could also feel really terrible. And when it's going bad, it's really, it's really going bad. It's, you're just like tripping over yourself in there. Well, I was going to say, you also won this Estella. And when I saw it in my head, I hear Marlon Brando screaming that and the way the painting looks like you can hear the scene, the sound of his voice and everything. So how often do movies or, you know, I know with music, how does that seep into it? Is there ever like a lyric that you just can't get out of your head that you need to express? Or do you try to stay away from that a little? No, I'll never, never do it. And people ask me to like, you know, can you like paint my favorite music lyric? And, and no. Um, so e either if it's, it's going to be a reference, you know, it's going to come from the overwhelming majority. It's, it's coming from my writing, um, you know, 
constantly taking notes, writing, distilling the language down to a sentence or a phrase um, where you could start to use that and then further refining it down um, and editing it and editing and editing it. And now there's references to, you know, popular culture, but, you know, I'll, yeah, I would never, you know, if, you know, I got a message the other day, if someone, if I could like write their favorite, like Bruce Springsteen lurk, and I love Bruce Springsteen, but I, I was like, no, I'm just not going to do it. But there was, there was one time where I actually, I did a painting pretty recently and I really liked the painting where it, it just says, remember me on it. And it's, a direct reference. I mean, he's almost like everyone's favorite artist, but he's, he, he's one of my favorite artists, uh, of course, Van Gogh. And my favorite painting is, is a self portrait of his where it's, he, it's self portrait with bandaged ear and it's right post of, uh, self mutilation. And he's sitting in his studio and he's in his big overcoat and he has his hat on and we tell that he's in his studio because there's an easel behind him and he has this Japanese wood print behind it. And, you know, he, on the, you know, on the envelope that he, that he put his ear in, he, he wrote, remember me on it. And that is a direct reference to that, to that, to that painting, to, to that process. But like, it's also when I look at the painting, it's this like, again, not to use like Oprah language, but it's, it's, it's hopeful, you know, despite everything that happened, uh, he's still in his studio making work. And like the sense of resiliency that that has. Um, but if it's that reference to that, you know, 1889 painting, it's, but it's, that's also a really shared feeling that we have collectively still where, you know, remember me, I want to exist. I want to feel important. Um, the work that I'm making, I want to be like remembered for, I want it to be deemed important. And isn't that, you know, when we're taking photos and putting on Instagram or Facebook, it's, it's all, it's that it's, Hey, look at me. I I'm here. And when I'm gone, hopefully I'm going to leave something that is reflective of the time that it was made. in. Uh, and I think we all want to be remembered as someone who was impactful or did something where people look back on their lives and they remember the people they were with. Um, I think some people's biggest fears are, am I going to be remembered when I'm not here anymore? Sure. Yeah. And absolutely. so when you start to think about that, it's like, well, how are you doing it? Well, Van Gogh did paintings and was an artist, but I'm sure at the time he was worried, is anyone going to remember me? And now here we oh, are, you know, hundred, hundred plus years later, still talking about him. And that's maybe a little also what's kind of cool about your work is your work's going to live on. Like you will be remembered. It's just what kind of artists will you be remembered for? Like what messages or pieces will people have hanging in their house? And that's a way that your legacy and you will be remembered. I hope so. Um, you know, one nice, it's my favorite thing and it's, it keeps bringing me back every day to doing it is, and it happens every single time I finish a painting, um, where the, the thought that you could take raw material, you know, wood, 
canvas, oil, pigments, whatever. And you could make something from that that has never existed before. You did it. And that gratification of doing it, um, that keeps, that's like the best part of it. And these objects, they, you know, they could, they travel all over the world and people are living with them and they're in different spaces. And, you know, there's little moments and these like little pieces of the studio kind of all over and where I'll see people like taking photos and, and whether the paintings in Tokyo or Rome, you know, or Berlin uh, or Mexico city, there's these things that I've made that have like filtered all over. And like, if they're a direct reflection of my time making the work and of that process, uh, then there's like these, it's like these little pieces of me all over in these different places. And that's a really like wonderful feeling to have. And, and I, when people, and again, yeah. And when people can see them and, you know, relate to them uh, within, you know, their own experiences, it, it's just really rewarding. And I believe you have a show coming up in Rome, correct? Yeah. So, yeah. The show opened in Rome um, two weeks ago. And uh, there's another show that's opening in Tokyo in February. And then there's a show that's opening in uh, New York in August. So, and we're working on all those paintings now and kind of get everything done. I was going to ask, so what is that process like? Do you decide to make work for individual um, shows or is it that you're just working and then you choose a selection um, and is it hard? Cause you're kind of giving a piece of yourself across the world for people to view. I, it's gotta be a little intimate when these things are coming out of your life and your arts being on there for display across the globe. Yeah. So I, you know, I work every day. So, I, you know, I'm, I, and so I'm in the studio and usually when we're getting close to a show, I'll start kind of like holding works back, reserving them for the show or, you know, creating that body that's going to go into the exhibition and I'll see things or I'll have other artists or friends kind of come in and, and see if there's something missing or if there's um, too heavy handed in one way, or if there's, uh, I feel like it's weak in certain aspects of, of certain parts of the content here, or even formal changes in the work where there's, you know, a wide variety of, of technique and of attitude that's kind of like associated in them because, you know, some of them are, you know, pretty sincere and almost overtly romantic. And I, I'm aware that, you know, I'm who I am making work in that studio and the, you know, the history that's associated with that, especially with post-war American painting. And how are you able to undercut that? Like, you know, like hit yourself in the kneecaps with it, either by, you know, the choice of color, with like really loud artificial colors, like pink is my favorite color and kind of like undermining that type of like, overt masculinity that's in the work so that so those choices have to be made that's kind of like 
getting ready for a show. And we're like right in the midst of kind of like doing that. Like for the, the gallerist that's in New York where we have conversations constantly about that what's going to go into the show like you know what is what kind of language is is going to be going in there um but like the other part is where if i'm making you know i'm making the work and i'm putting it out there no one is forcing me to do these things like no one is forcing me to make these objects um just myself you know i have obligations to like to, to dealers and collectors and things like that but you know at the end of the day i can easily you know, I could go do something else if I want, you know, no one's forcing me, but so it is uh, when it's out there, it, it, you know, cause some of it can be quite vulnerable. Um, putting that out there, uh, you just kind of like, you don't want to interact too much with like a response online that it's getting right? Like, don't read the comments, right? Like, you know, other people like, you know, post paintings, like, especially on like Instagram where it's like, you're, if, and don't go through them. Don't read the comments. It's not worth it. Because if there is, uh, you know, 250 comments, there's going to be three assholes in there that, and those are the only things that you will remember, you know, and it's just best not to engage with it. Don't read them. Don't do anything. Just put your head down, make the work and kind of put it out there and just keep moving. Because like, if you start to engage with it, like I would have, I remember there was, there was a, uh, a couple paintings that uh, this uh, critic posted and there was some just, you know, cynical comments that people were posting and I would have like friends like respond to them. And I would like text them and like, don't do that. Don't respond. Like just, you know, don't do anything by it. Don't get into like an online argument because it's an echo chamber. Like if you throw, you know, it, it's not a real place, you know, that kind of like, it's not healthy criticism. And, you know, like it's, it's just, I forgot who said it, but like, if you, if you're feeling too good about yourself, go online. Like, you know, you read a lot of negative shit on there. Yeah, and also part of me feels like the individuals who are putting that negative stuff, like, would they ever say that to my face? Like, if if you would say that to my face, sure, go ahead, post that. Like, if you had the balls or the courage enough to come up to you and say what oh, they're saying. Yeah, but exactly. if you're hiding behind a fake account and just, like, typing, then I wish for the best for you. Like, I hope yeah. whatever is making you so unhappy, you find happiness somehow. And I think that's when I've seen negative comments or people will make some remarks when I started this podcast, I was like, okay, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to live my true and best life. Um, yeah. I hope you can do the same and you can think whatever you want, but I'm at least waking up every day and like your painting says, like, I don't give a fuck anymore. I, I was just having this conversation with my wife a couple of days ago where, um, and I, I just said almost the same thing to her. I was like, there would be no way that uh, someone would say that if they were standing in front of me. Because if, like, I would throw them out of a window. Uh, and it, it just it just does not happen because, like, it, again, it's not, a, it's not a real space. So, you know, people think that they can, you know, just say or act or 
however the hell they want to do it. But you know, it has to, but it has to filter into our culture though, either way. Like, right. Like you have to, just because you could, you, you think you have license to be miserable in this like online persona. It has to, that's, that cynicism has to, in fact, other parts of your actual life, your other relationships. There's, I, I can't imagine that there's a way that you could just shut it off where you could be that upset or pretend to be that upset about something that you see on, you know, Instagram or Facebook or, or you know, whatever. Yeah, I just like don't get where all like the negativeness comes from. Like when people just post stuff and comments and I'm just like, someone's really proud of their accomplishments or are feeling themselves and feel like they look like hot shit and good for them. So they posted a picture and then you see all these negative comments. Let let the person live, let them feel good, let them do whatever. I don't know why we as a society feel the need to put people down all the time. And I sometimes wonder, and I had this conversation with someone else recently, if we all like clapped for each other more and supported each other more i'm so curious to see where we would be as 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 a society instead of the hatred and the negativity it's it's coming into our society and our everyday life a rush of water nonstop that we just like can't close the dam it feels like sometimes and like there's you know there is a there is a need and for healthy criticism of art for I, sure i like, love a good feedback like tell me yeah, where like, i can improve or if i hurt your feelings it's not even like it, i wouldn't I actually wouldn't even care if i hurt someone's feelings but like if like the there's a there's a place for that and but i don't know if i don't know if that's the best format but but also at the same time it's like what else, whether what other outlet does you know that person that's writing that have like they have to and like that is their experience like they they want to be seen right like they want to feel like you know they want to be remembered yeah they want to like they're throwing up a flag like saying hey i'm here too right like look at me um and they want to have some type of reaction um because uh, i don't know i i I don't ever in, you can't engage with it. You, you can't. No, and, like, and I would think with art too, it's like, it's art. Like, listen, I'm not, I didn't go to school for art. Sometimes I look at art and I'm like, I just don't get it. But like, if it speaks to you or speaks to others, like that's what it's supposed to do. Your art spoke to me, which is why I reached out to you. Maybe for others, they go, it didn't speak to me and that's okay. God, and God bless it. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's 31 flavors for a reason. Not everyone's yeah, going to choose the same. For, yeah, exactly. This is not for everyone. And I, you know, I, it, you know, hell, there's, there's paintings that, you know, my wife doesn't like, like she'll like walk into the studio, like not today. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it happens. It, not everyone likes it and not everyone should, you know, I, not everyone should like it. No, because if everyone was the same, then we wouldn't have creativity. We wouldn't have that like healthy banter or opinions or conversations. It's just the negative, um, the real below the belt stuff. That's like, do you really need to say that anonymously on someone's post sure. that they're proud of? No, but I, you know, 
hopefully we get there at some point where someone uh, hears this episode and goes, oh, okay, maybe like I don't need to be an asshole today. You have more faith than I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta. Sometimes it's hard to pull that out every day. Um, but I think that if I try to lean a little bit more positive, I project that energy and vibes, I hope, a little more. Because we can all definitely get a little dark and angry and for sure. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, you know, when I'm working and I'm in the studio, it's, it's important uh, kind of like remind yourself, you know, just kind of keep that at bay. And like, at the same time, it's, but it, it goes to, you can't just let everything, like all of the praise and all of the good things kind of like come in. There has to be healthy criticism. That's also coming into your practice and it's trying to find a way to edit out something that is just cynical and then something that is you could actually constructive and trying to find that balance in there where i'll ask like a lot of different artists you know about the work and send them over work and talk to them about it and work through certain things that are on my mind either formally or you know conceptually about the work and try to you know, work through some of that with them. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of those artists I met in grad school and I'm still, you know, really close friends with still. And like building that type of like community with them is, is really nice. Also my wife, like I run like a lot of, I've run a lot of things past her too. She went, she, you know, she's a photographer. She got, she went to grad school for photography and she's an elementary school art teacher. So she'll like, she'll be, she'll take home like, you know, art projects from kids and I'll, you know, I'll be sitting there and I was like, son of a bitch, that is great. I wish I made that. Uh, so it's like, so it's that. So I'll run a lot of things past her. Also, my dog is in, in the studio with me every day and I'll try to run things past him too, but he, he doesn't like anything. I know I have an English bulldog who sometimes pops up and I talk to him like he's a person or a co-host sometimes we have um, the yeah we have a hundred pound german shepherd uh more and i we don't have any kids so he, it's just us three uh in this house and he we love him i'm with him every day you know he he's with me in in the studio he's the only time he's not with me is when i'm teaching so before we dive into the final three questions what piece of advice would you give to young artists uh, Oh, I, I get asked that sometimes too. And like, I, it's, it's, I feel like almost bashful about answering because like, I've been, I've been doing this for, you know, 15, 16 years, you know, I'm 35 now. And I don't know if I have, if I'm in a position to give advice, like in a way where I know what works for me and you know, it's, it's, you, you make work every day and you have to make a lot of it. But I think that the most important thing is to remove barriers between yourself and your studio practice. Like try to find a way, make it as easy as possible for you to make work. Like I had a, I had a studio in a warehouse for the longest time. And before we bought this place and, you know, it was, I would be trekking there and, you know, the middle of winter 
all of that, forcing myself to go. Now, you know, I walk down a flight of stairs and like the whole studio is there and it's really easy for me to make work and I can, you know, work as much as I want every day. Like, you know, when we're done, I'm going to walk downstairs and, you know, go in the studio again. And it's so it's, it's that try to find a way where you have to integrate it within to your, like, within to your life. For instance, for like 10 years, I, I worked as, as a real estate developer doing this as well. And so I, I worked in a, re, at a really small firm. I, the two guys that started it, I was very, very close with. Um, one was like my older brother. He was the best man in my wedding. And I was doing that full time, working in the studio as much as humanly possible, and then teaching night classes at, at a local college, and which I still do, which I love doing. They, I would do it for free. I, I love doing it. Um, and, but I would, you know, the, my office was so close. I would like run here for lunch, like put in like an hour into the studio, run back to the office anytime at all possible to try to like make work. But the thing is, it was unfair to them because not only did I have like one foot in and one foot out, I was like, at the end, I just had like, I was so invested into the studio where it was, again, unfair to completely unfair to them. And it kind of like when I left it, it, you know, it had this really detrimental effect on our relationship because, you know, I, I left, but that was, you know, you got to find a way to like, that was an unhealthy way to do it where, you know, cause I was stretched so thin and I was doing like multiple things shitty instead of doing one or two things well and since i've been just in the studio and then teaching um that kind of goes hand in hand with each other because you know i teach uh i'm a professor here and i teach art history i also teach in the humanities department so poetry painting those things are actively going hand in hand with the studio and you know so try to find a way to kind of like do that, make a way, find a way where your studio practice is more integrated within to your, like for a long time, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to find work. You're going to have to find a job, try to find a way where they meld into each other a little bit easier because I, I can never shut my, shut it off. You know, I can never like, okay, I'm a, I'm a real estate developer now, or I'm an artist. No, it's, it's you're, you're doing too many things. And again, you're doing, you know, No, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, Eric, before we dive into the final three questions, I just have to say thank you. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. I'm so excited how it took a lot of different twists and turns by fathers in real estate. So it's really weird that we've had a lot of different uh, similarities, but that's what I love about all these conversations. The first question I ask every guest is if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Uh, everything will be okay eventually. And not, again, to use such like uplifting <laughs> language or self-empowering language, but it's, it's, it's almost like I feel that every day in the studio where, you know, you're going to have a lot of bad sessions. Uh, there, is, there is always tomorrow morning and it, it'll, it'll be okay. It's a great piece of advice. 
Uh, the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I wonder how many people say this, but it's really true for me. Uh, my wedding day. I, I, I married my best friend that day. We got married in, in my in-law's backyard. It was this really intimate, really nice. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was incredible. Um, I would say maybe like five or six guests in the past have said okay. that. Some guests have said like when their first child was born. But I always love when they say their wedding day because when they say it, you can tell like they're still so in love with their partner. And sometimes that's really rare in today's Absolutely. world. So, oh, my light went out. So, um, for sure. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would you choose? I love the Link Ray song, La Di Da. And it, it's almost like an affirmation uh, for living. And it's, it's, it's hard not to be in a good mood when you, when you hear that song. I, I listen to it a lot. So I'm going to add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify right, yeah. theme song playlist so listeners can hear your theme song along with all the other guests. Eric, again, thank you so much for your time, for being so open and vulnerable with your story and for chatting with me. Um, I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person since we're both in Chicago. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.